Everybody's talking about Chinese Jensen and everybody's talking about how different they are and how their lifestyles are changing, governed by digital technology, social media. And I think there's a concern, not just in China, but I think perhaps in other parts of the world, that there will be a natural decline in perhaps identity and cultural identity and association with your past, your heritage. Maybe that's something that's a little bit concerning. You know, a nation's culture resides in the hearts and the soul of its people. So trying to teach patriotism kind of nurtures a culture that helps shape a society that embodies values of courage, unity, and a collective progress. But it's it's awfully hard to legislate that. China is at a stage now where they really can be, I think, much more self-exude, more self-confidence about their culture and their governance. If this uh, any patriotic law that's drafted, I'd like to see the China, you know, exude a little bit more self-confidence and go in that direction rather than worry too much about the little slights. The Chat Lounge. Chat Lounge. Chat Lounge. The Chat Lounge unpacks views and opinions on hot issues in a more casual way. Welcome to the Chat Lounge. I'm Tu Yun. Joining our discussion on China's legislation on patriotic education are Edward Lehman, founder and managing director of China-based law firm Lehman, Lee and Xu. Mike Baston, China observer and senior lecturer at the University of Southampton in Britain. And David Moser, associate professor at Beijing Capital Normal University. Welcome back on the show. So... Chinese lawmakers are contemplating a new law aimed to promote the spirit of uh, patriotism in the country, especially among the younger generations. And the patriotic education law will be the first of its kind to be applied across the country, which means it will be national law. But patriotism, simply put, is the feeling of love for devotion to one's country. Isn't it an innate human sentiment? Why does it have to be promoted. Um, let me start with David. Yeah, I think that there's a, at least a, the situation is different in every country and in every culture mm. and in every time era, uh, because the notion of a country is an evolving one and one that has not always been, uh, you know, the, the natural human construction of, of a, a civil, of a organizational uh, structure for a country or culture. I can only speak mostly to the examples I'm familiar with. Right. Uh, I think there's a problem in uh, this issue because there there is a difference between patriotism and knowledge of your country's history. Mm. The two are this two are, are somewhat separate. And when it comes to anything that's taught in the schools, there's always a risk uh, when you prioritize something uh, that you're going to make it boring. <laughs> and for me, American history and world history are not boring. They're fascinating. But mm. somehow, when I sat through junior high and high school, reading history books and learning about American history and world history, somehow they managed to make it boring. And uh, I think for that reason, young people tune out or get turned off of, of history, which is part of the patriotic uh, agenda. You, right. You're supposed to know about where your country came from and where it is now and what what's lovable about it. And if students are turned off of even wanting, wanting to hear about anything previous to what they remember when they were born, which most people don't care much about anything that's not in their relevant to their daily life right now, that you get a situation where people, it's not a matter of patriotic or not, they simply don't know how to assess their country. And um, But they are obliged to learn, right? And, and in the States, do you have this law trying to promote patriotism? 
Not really, no. We, mm. we, there, there have been some customs that have evolved over the years. Uh, when I was a child, maybe up into high school, at least, I don't remember when we stopped doing it, but every morning we had to stand up and look at the flag and I think put the hands, uh, put our hands on our chests and recite uh, what was called the Pledge of Allegiance. I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to the country for which it stands, one nation mm. under God, indivisible liberty. They, they added the under God part later on, by the way. But anyway, we said that. And we had no idea what it meant, <laughs> and no one ever explained it to us. And that was it. That was patriotism. And we like, why are we pledging to this flag? I don't know. I don't get it. But that's when uh, you so were very that, young. That but now you understand why you have to do it, right? Well, now I don't think it was even worthwhile doing it. They would probably spend a better a better uh, two minutes just giving us some little tidbit of American history or giving us a quote from Abraham Lincoln would have been better, I think. Um, but what about your compatriot, your, your fellow countryman, Edward? No, I mean, I think it's, it's important. I, I don't disagree that I, there, there should be some semblance of understanding history. Right. Patriotism kind of invokes, you know, it's hard to say what one man's rebel is another patriot. I mean, was, I mean, was George Washington, was he a rebel or uh, from King George III? Or was he a, uh, a patriot for the United States? Depends on, I guess, your perspective, just like uh, David had pointed out. But you're right. The question is, is to legislate patriotism is mm. extremely difficult. I, too, was from the generation where you stood up and you, you know, pledged allegiance to the flag. Uh, other states, for example, the state of Texas has not only do you have the U.S. Uh, pledge, but you have uh, you have the Texas pledge. Um, I'm, I'm from Illinois, so we just we didn't have an Illinois pledge. Mm. But, um, you know, a nation's culture resides in the hearts and the soul of its people. Yeah. So trying to teach patriotism kind of nurtures a culture that helps shape a society that embodies values of courage, unity and a collective progress. But it's it's awfully hard to legislate that. It's a bit like in the Constitution, in the Chinese Constitution, it mm. says, uh, you know, that parents must take care of their children and then children must take care of their parents. <laughs> And then later they legislated that there had to be a certain number of meetings between parents and children when the children became adults. They're great ideas, but difficult to legislate. So, I mean, it's, it's not necessarily a bad thing to have patriotism, but it's, it's extremely difficult to legislate that, in, you know, for the public. Yeah, maybe you don't have a like special law, like a, called um, patriotic education law in the States, but you got many other regulations say when someone is granted this uh, citizenship of uh, the United States of America, they have to, yeah, like you just said, pledge allegiance. Is it a must or? I'm sorry to answer this. I mean, I don't want to bounce around here too much, but I mean, the Supreme Court ruled in a landmark case in what was West Virginia State Board of Education versus Barnett in 1943 that students cannot be compelled to recite the pledge or face punishment for refusing to do so. Now, we, I mean, we grew up, or I certainly grew up after I, I'm not this. So, I'm not saying uh, students, but, uh, you know, uh, people from other countries that are being a U.S. citizen, and right. they have to go through this procedure, right? Right. I mean, certainly the, the, that is done at those places. I mean, so the Pledge of Allegiance is done in some government meetings. It's, mm -hmm. it's I've seen it actually done in some courtrooms as well before the courtroom commences. Um, I, and, and like you were saying, at naturalization ceremonies, mm -hmm. uh, immigrants who are going through the process of becoming U.S. citizens often recite the Pledge of Allegiance. And I don't think of an instance where that hasn't happened or I don't know where that's happened is part of the naturalization ceremonies 
it's kind of a symbolic act representing their commitment to the United States and its values. Right. In military and law enforcement, I mean, we, there, it's also commonly used the Pledge of Allegiance. But again, you know, or in graduations or promotions, you know, the different like Fourth of July is coming up. And so you might see it. You certainly will see it there inducted probably by Nicholas Burns. And they'll, they'll have a, a military, um, you know, a, a group of, uh, of, of military folks that will be um, assembling. And then they will say the Pledge of Allegiance at that point in time. It's one of those things where you cannot force the speech on people. So if you don't mm. want to say something, but it's civic and patriotic events you know, like Memorial Day, Independence Day, which is coming up, and Veterans Day, you'll often see the Pledge of Allegiance in, in those instances. Like, I'm not sure everybody knows the words. I mean, certainly I do, uh, because I grew up, like I was saying, certainly in primary school, uh, in middle school, we, we, we were required to do that. Oh, right. But you're saying it's not a, um, maybe it's not a, you know, a national thing, because I, I read about this uh, 1836 project promoting patriotic education in Texas. Is it like a, just a case-by-case case or state-by-state, Edward? Yeah, I-, I mean, yeah, Texas is kind of a, a very special place. Like I said, they have their own uh, Texas Pledge of Allegiance. I'm not sure that everyone knows that or not. Mm-hmm. They also were, they had five flags that they were underneath. I mean, five separate flags flew over the state of Texas, including the Republic of Texas and Mexico. Right. Uh, they were part of uh, of the French uh, Empire, I guess, at one point. And uh, you're right. You're exactly right. I mean, they have a, a special kind of situation where they're teaching Texas history, which is kind of unique. And, you know, just going back to my own childhood, and this is mine, I, I can't attest to what happened, you know, to everybody else. But I mean, we were required by seventh grade to participate in a national examination about history. Mm. Uh, and, and I agree that the people who were teaching history, certainly when I was in the seventh grade, uh, were not the greatest people on, on wheels. And as a result, you either kind of liked it or you didn't like it or you had an affinity towards it. But you're absolutely right. I mean, the state of Texas is is a unique place and then they have their own history, which they're teaching to folks. And that's part of legislation for the state of Texas. Right, understand. And uh, Mike? What about the situation in Britain? There's no such a, a law governing patriotic education, right? No, no, there isn't. As the panelists have said, every every country is different and can be very, very different when mm. it comes to what do we mean by being patriotic, what do we mean by national culture. And again, a very good point by David, it changes in time, over time. So there's no such law, there's no such education. Obviously, British history is taught uh, at primary school, and there will be certain values that will be instilled, and schools will display those. But it's not really something that's very, very prominent. And if you ask somebody about, uh, I think, a typical, I mean, it, it, again, it varies within the or across the United Kingdom. So if you, if you ask, for example, no Scottish person would say they're British. Quite a few English people would say, well, yeah, I'm British, but and I'm from England. Mm. So how they look at their cultural identity and their cultural background varies across different countries. And I think in terms of my childhood, thinking about what was sort of made clear to me, I think um, a very British thing would be the Queen, the Queen arriving and driving around the street. And as primary school kids, we were made to line the streets and wave Union Jacks mm-hmm. at her and smile and be cheerful. Yeah. Yeah. You're all saying there were no such laws in your respective country. But um, there is no law. Just back to the point that that, um, I think you made that when you my wife went through this, when you apply for British citizenship, there Mm -hmm. is a test. There's a British history test that you have to pass. So you have to be have a certain amount of knowledge 
And also, when you enter the Houses of Parliament as a member of Parliament, mm. you have to pledge allegiance to the Queen. So, so there's, I mean, that's about as close as we come. Right, right. When you hear that uh, China is going to introduce such a law, what's your first response? It might sound re- repellent or something. Well, I certainly uh, I uh, back the point that David made that if you introduce something like this and you introduce some sort of patriotic education element to primary schools, it could backfire. I mean, it could have no or very little impact at all. I think what's going on here is that the you know, everybody's talking about generation, we say it's Gen Z, mm. Chinese Gen Z, certainly my area when it comes to luxury, fashion, you know, they're, they're such a huge market. And everybody's talking about how different they are and how their lifestyles are changing, governed by digital technology, social media. Mm. And I think there's a concern, not just in China, but I think perhaps in other parts of the world, that there will be a decline, a natural decline in perhaps identity and cultural identity and association with your your past and your, your heritage. So I think maybe that's something that's a little bit concerning. But I have to say my research, which is really very much in this area, mm. is quite counterintuitively the opposite. So I find that younger generations, younger Chinese generations, are actually even more nostalgic mm. and then feel a stronger attachment, maybe locally as well, to their their culture and, and the use of Chinese elements, again, in my area in fashion, is, is becoming more and more highly valued. So I, I think it's just this focus on this, the Gen Zs, or we could call the Ling Ling Ho, uh, and, and their, their very different lifestyles. Then, Edward, why is there a necessity for the government to legislate it? Yeah, I mean, that's a good question. I mean, you've got 1.4 billion people. Okay, right. so some people know it just intuitively and some people don't. And I mean, it, it, over the whole wide spectrum. And so legislation helps people to understand what they should do. I mean, it, when I was a kid, certainly my mother was a very persnickety with regards to manners, which is which is sort of funny. And we got Mike on the call here and he can testify to that, to this maybe or maybe not when my mother rest in peace, what she would say, uh, you know, when I would use my knife and fork, I would use them a specific way. And, and uh, my mother would say that that's not appropriate. And then later I learned that Brits use it exactly the opposite the way that we use it, we, uh, as far as a knife and fork is concerned. And she would misquote saying the queen wouldn't do it that way. Not, not, not that the queen was... Uh, you know, the, the kind of gravity in our household, but she would mention stuff like that. So long story short is, is that some folks need to be taught manners. And so some folks need to be taught what's patriotic and what's not. And I think by reducing it into legislation, that can be helpful. I think it's very difficult to enforce patriotism, but it's, it's sort of easy to put legislation together on what might be helpful. Mm. Then do you see anything special about the timing of the legislation. I mean, you know, have the cases of defaming the seized national heroes or martyrs to any extent underlying the urgency or necessity of introducing such a law? And- well, certainly, yeah. But I mean, this, yeah, there was this uh, instance where the fellow, this Luo Changping, he made derogatory remarks about Chinese soldiers who, who froze to death in the Korean War mm-hmm. in, in the you know chosen reservoir. Right. So maybe that's kind of one of the things that precipitated this. I mean, all these things, like like I say, I mean, Miranda, Mr. Miranda, who are, are part of the criminal or the rights that people have once they're arrested, Mr. Miranda was kind of a terrible guy. He had killed two people in the state of Arizona, mm. yet he wasn't read his rights and he was let free. He then becomes sort of this this poster uh, you know, child or whatever for people having certain rights. 
And so maybe this situation where there's been these derogatory statements about folks who, um, you know, who died in, in South Korea, and, and he's a, apparently a very popular person, mm. uh, you know, on, on social media. And so I think what they've tried to do is identify, you know, and social media and AI and all these other things come into play, certainly, and that people can have 2 million or 20 million followers that they need to be able to somehow legislate what can be said and what cannot be said. Part of what we deal with in the United States is freedom of speech, of course. You yeah. have the right, by the way, to, to trample on the flag. That's a, there's a court case that talks about that. You have the right to uh, hang the flag upside down, to burn the flag as well. All these things are part of freedom of, of, uh, of speech and freedom of expression in the United States, which is well thought out. But, so, including, but think, including insulting like uh, veterans? Absolutely. And I mean, and there's a, a, a case, uh, you know, which is a group of uh, people from a Baptist church that uh, would show up at funerals for veterans and defame those veterans, uh, the, the, the folks who are attending the funeral, as well as the, the, uh, the subject of the, of the uh, burial. Um, they were defamed and their rights are protected. But I, I remember, yeah, I remember there was this veteran. I I don't remember his name, but with one eye, I think blinded uh, on Warfield, and it, when he was assaulted by some, uh, not insulted by some um, TV host, there was a huge row in the states, and that TV host uh, eventually had to apologize to this veteran. The person who was insulted was a guy called. Dan Crenshaw, he was a congressman from, he is a congressman actually, Republican representative from Texas oh, and yeah. a former Navy SEAL. So he was insulted on Saturday, Saturday Night, Night Live. Yeah, and then later they, you know, nothing was illegal about that. By mm -hmm. the way, I mean, Dan Crenshaw is what's called a public figure. All our politicians are. You can say bad things about them and to them and mm -hmm. use bad words describing them, and that's not against the law. The uh, But in that particular case, they issued a, a formal apology to him. And then later, I mean, Dan Crenshaw said some bad things about other people, about Republicans, by the way, mm. about rhinos and was forced to make an apology. So it's kind of a, a never ending cycle in China, by the way. I mean, defamation is a pretty strong tool. And even truth is not a defense to that, uh, meaning that if you even if it's true that you did something bad, if somebody mentions it on a platform, you're still liable for it. So it's, it's kind of a, a different system, certainly from the United States. You're listening to The Chat Lounge. We'll be back after the break. D-Dime, a podcast of CGT Radio. We go beyond headlines with reporters from around the world. Search for Deep Dive on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen. Take a deep dive into the news every week. Hear our conversations. Welcome back. You're listening to The Chat Lounge, and we're discussing China's legislation on patriotic education. David, what's your observation here in China, also about the timing of it, the introduction of the law? Yeah. No, I, I understand. I mean, and there is a difference here uh, with the attitude towards what things can be covered by, you know, free speech can be part of public discourse. Right. Uh, I think, I mean, here's my personal opinion. You know, I, I think that although you want to be careful or, or, or if people are doing some egregious sort of violations of public decorum and decency by insulting war heroes or, or something, mm. you know, th that comes under some, you know, Edward would know more about this, how it might play out in, in China. But, you know, things things like defamation or, you know, public uh, uh, defaming someone, 
there is such a sentiment and there is such a, a, a social convention that we need to think about. I think patriotism is should be a matter of not such a matter of almost like religious reverence. It's mm. like it's a doctrine or something that you can't uh, violate. But it, it, it should be, you know, uh, just a factual thing. And what's what if there if uh, there's something great about your country, then that's just a fact. You don't need to be patriotic to recognize it and, and to be proud of it because it's just good. And I think that the main thing is that patriotism education should highlight those aspects of your culture and your country that are positive and that people need to be more aware of to appreciate why uh, th- what's great about your culture and your country, rather than being very sensitive to little slights or insults, because those are temporary things and they can be basically ignored usually because they don't have any larger effect on the public sentiment. But uh, let me give you a, a specific example. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I teach uh, undergraduates. So these are Chinese students who are in their t- early 20s or late you know, teens. And I find out really that they really don't know much about recent Chinese history and especially the period that that we call the Gaiga Kaifeng era. So we're talking about the 80s when they they began to reform the Mm. the economy and uh, the the decades from the 80s to the 90s where Chinese GDP absolutely exploded and China had the the greatest expansion of economic progress and uh, also huge leaps in poverty alleviation, historic uh, improvements in the daily life of Chinese that was the direct result of, uh, frankly, Deng Xiaoping and his policies of making China into a very prosperous uh, economic powerhouse within a very short time. That's an example of something that should, I think, should be under the rubric of patriotic education. Mm. I mean, these kids mm. ought to be taught this in school, and, and they need to be very aware of the uncomfortable fact that when this began, China was very backward as a country, that they had you know, the ravages of World War II and all the things that happened in China up to that point, that China was a huge population, a huge country, an important culture that, that had grown uh, you know, weak and, and, and was the victim of lots of foreign uh, insults and, and intrusions. This uh, history uh, where China moved from that to the powerhouse it is today is something that Chinese students need to be more aware of they need to be acutely aware of the contrast and, and where we are today as opposed to then. But I don't have the sense that my Chinese students really know about that or care much about it. I think, you know, if you want to talk about patriotic education, you ought to start there or yeah. at, you know, certain aspects that are that are just historical facts, but yeah. presented in an interesting way so they can actually see that this this was an amazing uh, kind of a, you know, a cultural miracle that had that was very rare in, in world history. And that's the kind of thing I would be more interested in and not just to teaching them sort of to to value certain things that ought to be obvious if you're just a you know if you're just a someone who knows what's good and about China and Chinese culture. Yeah, I think what you said in, in the very beginning of our show makes a lot of sense. Maybe those students, you know, usually what you just mentioned is integrated in our history classes, right? And yeah. maybe because the history well, classes were too boring for, for them. Yes, well, that's what you should know, because I think you're of the same you're of, of a, a generation that could appreciate this. I will just mention this. I mean, there's one sad fact about history education in China. Mm-hmm. And that is, I think that whole endeavor is tainted by the Gaokao, the college entrance exam, because students right at the age where they need to be learning these things, there's this exam, which is so important. And unfortunately, because of the large numbers, it has to be a kind of a formulate, rote, memorized exam format that can be assessed the academic skills of nine million students, you know, I mean, impossible task. So there's this, there's history, students associate history with the Gaokao 
uh, preparation. And of course they find it boring because, you know, it's a lot of information they had to cram into their heads. And once they're finished with it, they said, why in the world would I want to study anything more about that? Uh, so, yeah, I think that it, that's just a fact of Chinese education life, which is there is this test that I think taints students attitude towards history as a subject in general and anything to do with with this sorts of China's historic trajectory just turns them off because they find it boring. Yeah, apart from learning history, um, there are also other ways to, I don't know if it's okay to say indoctrinate um, the young kids. Say inculcate, inculcate uh, patriotic values. You could say that. <laughs> right. Um, there are a lot of other ways, right? Like uh, singing a national anthem raising national flags and uh i think sport can come into it a lot too i think um yeah and certainly for younger generations i think right. they're, they're very excited about the national team playing sport and again that varies across countries and cultures you know completely mm. but certainly in this country that the younger generations particularly get very excited about let's say when england the england football national team is playing particularly in a world cup and either the, the cricket that summer sport as well now playing Against Australia, and they're the arch enemy. So that's that's all the news, and all the the kids are really excited about that. So right, that, that'll that unite the whole nation. Cultural, yeah, and 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 I think that 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 resonates more. So if you ask them about their Englishness or their English identity and culture, then I think um, a love of the of the sports played here and the local club teams as well. I mean, football is really perhaps the, the most influential form of entertainment. Here, probably across Europe, more than it's ever been. I right. think that really seeped into the, the local sort of daily culture. But again, I think it, it's coming back to, to just a, a fear of this the, the younger generations having this this power in their hands now with this mobile phone, and, and that you know, they really are living a, a, in a, a different world, a different a different life. And I, I'm getting that with my kids now at um, 12 and 14. It's, it's quite frightening about what how much control you can have over them and how they can be by what's out there. They have access to it. No matter how, how much you, um, you put controls in place, you do question you know, what, um, how effective they are. Yeah, obviously. Sport, I mean, for me, I, I, I would say my, my, the only time I'm really patriotic is really sport. And, and it's very temporary. It can be quite emotional. But that, that's, that's how I would define my sort of English, Englishness. Uh, that's about it. Right, and that, that obviously will enhance your um, awareness of a national identity, of course. I think it's for um, most of people in this world. But one thing, yeah, going back a little bit to what both David and Edward mentioned, is this um, pledges of allegiance. According to um, reports, the spirit of uh, patriotism would be promoted through various ways um, we've already mentioned. And of course, also through the pledges of allegiance to the constitution. Yeah. Chinese people like me, you know, have long been very familiar with those practices like a singing national anthem, except for the pledge of allegiance to the constitution, which has been integrated into education or work at some schools or government departments only in recent years. So I want to ask Edward and uh, David, why is this so important? Yeah, I mean, I think I, I think it's really important because it sets up uh, a foundational issue with regards to what one is supposed to be doing. I mean, or not. I mean, and again, there's been a ton of legislation on it in the United States. I mean, when I look at it from the American perspective, so I mean, I started to teach 
in law schools in China in the 1980s. The Constitution was not necessarily to be mentioned. I'm not sure anyone said this mm. in particular to me, but I mean, I helped set up uh, what's now the LLM program at, what's at East China University of Politics and Law. It was the first class and the that was establishing that program, but that we were not really necessarily taught or talked about with regards to the Constitution, which was not necessarily like the United States. That's the, the very epicenter of our system, and it kind of outlines what the system is all about. It was a little bit different in China. Um, but I think that what we're seeing now is that there are consequences with this fellow like Luo Changping, who said some you know, what disrespectful things to who are uh, the law of protection on heroes and martyrs, and, and w whether he was going to be prosecuted under that or not. Mm. But, you know, I think for any society, for any organization, they've got to say, these are the things that we hold dear, and these are the ways we're going to implement these laws, policies, and regulations. United States, different kind of a country from China, and so the way that they're going to implement those laws, policies, and regulations, and I, it, I've seen it over my career here in, in China, is different, you know, how, how they're doing it, and they're just now coming to grips with you know, how to implement laws, policies, and regulations. And it's been an ongoing process. When I got here, the criminal law was was certainly well-developed, but uh, civil procedure law wasn't uh, yet put in place. Uh, the China Civil Code wasn't put in place. So there were a whole bunch of things. It was based on the German Code of 1896. Mm. And there were the other thing that, to keep in mind that there just weren't the lawyers. So you got 1.3 million lawyers in the United States. I don't know, you've got, uh, what is it, 435 members of Congress. Many of them are lawyers. So lawyers are, you know, first and foremost in law is a part of our system in the United States since 1789, the founding of our country. And it hasn't been the case. If you look at the 2,980 some odd members of the National People's Congress, uh, the largest parliament in the world, there's probably not but a handful of lawyers over there. And maybe that's just a way of looking at, at the world or solving problems which is different from the United States. Mm. So like I said, I think that the rule, the idea of the rules are good, how one implements them, there's that's the tricky bit. Yeah, just like um, David mentioned earlier, would it trigger any repugnant um, sentiment of um, to uh, the, such kind of law or regulations, especially among you know, the younger generations who are usually very rebellious, David? Yeah, well, you're certainly right about that. You know, I can remember being that young, and I, I sort of looked askance at all, at all right. that stuff too. You, you look at like these these are things my parents and grandparents care about. Why this is a totally new world? Why do I want to care about this? Mm -hmm. So yeah, young people are are where I mean I think it's perceived that that you've got to start with the younger people because uh, if you don't instill patriotism in them early on, then when by the time they grow older, it's too late. They've already hardened their values and are either sensitive or insensitive to the values that you're trying to promote. You know, I, again, I would think we you really don't want patriotic promulgation, patriotic, uh, you know, campaigns to take on a kind of religious, a religious style in which, you know, these are precepts and beliefs that we have and they're inviolable and you can, and you just have to mouth the slogans, mm -hmm. you know, and the slogans are all that matter. I think quite the contrary. I think you have to somehow make those slogans more meaningful by adding something to it. You know, I don't have anything wrong with... You know, all over town, you have these signs with the 12 core socialist values, mm. and they include things like, you know, freedom, democracy, tolerance, and so on. And yes, they're there, and people look at them and they go, okay, okay. But I've seldom seen classes or, you know, programs where those slogans or those those two character 
concepts are actually spelled out in more detail and given some more flesh. And I think that's every country is guilty of just putting out the, the images and the slogans and not really diving into it. There's one thing that I, I another distinction that I think is important and Edward will know what I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. And I'm not sure how it works here in China or, or the Great Britain, but uh, there used to be a f- something in the educational system that we called civics. And civics was not exactly history. Civics was a, a course or a curriculum in which you look at the how your government functions and how it works and why it works the way it does and, and why it's successful. I think that's something that China needs. It's something the U.S. has lost. I mean, you no longer teach that. So students in the United States have read, they've never read the Constitution. They don't know what's in there. And I think that, uh, you know, in China as well, probably few people have really read the Constitution. Mm. If there are something that I would call civics or civics-like classes that actually teach how difficult how difficult it is to govern a country and what your country does in order to govern that country, it could be eye-opening. And when you actually teach, it's like people think that economics is boring. They think mathematics is boring. They think mm-hmm. history is boring. No, these are all very fascinating subjects. And if you can teach why Chinese system, why the Chinese system is unique and what's good about it, you can teach that and make it interesting and make it vital and make students realize that it's a part of their daily life. It's not just an abstract thing. But it's, I don't know why, it just seems hard to do that when there's so many other things that the education system needs to accomplish that we just ignore that aspect. So yeah, I, I think part of patriotism, it's not just the slogans, it's not just the flag, it's its also the content has to be there or the young people will just turn it out, turn it off. Yeah, maybe it's a, it's a question that the, some online content providers will have to, you know, consider or think. Yeah really Maybe, hard yeah. what but that, that's the problem i think i mean certainly just to follow up on, on what, sure. what david was saying about the civics class i mean the idea and we had to take that back then and i don't know what the status of it is now but it was kind of a social studies class and it focused on uh you know the political system civic responsibilities sort of it was a kind of a broad thing it wasn't necessarily hi- history it wasn't necessarily about patriotism but it was supposed to teach all of those things in some way shape or form but it was also supposed to sort of foster critical thinking skills, mm. kind of civic virtues, whatever the heck that is, and understanding the principles on which the United States was founded. So that was the idea when when we wound up taking it. And then there was standardized testing. Like I said, as I recall, it was like in the seventh grade or it was in the first year of middle school. I went to one of those ridiculous schools that went from six years old until 13 years old, all in the same building. It sounds crazy, but true. But I think that there was some merit probably to that. I think that that's sort of diminished with regards to the way that education is is looked upon today. The Chat Lounge. The Chat Lounge unpacks views and opinions on hot issues in a more casual way. Let's talk a little bit about other potential impact of this upcoming law. David didn't mention this, but, you know, online content providers, they are required to to strengthen the creation and dissemination of patriotic content. And uh, also, they're required to provide and use new platforms, technologies, and products to actively spread patriotism online. It kind of sounds a little bit abstract, but what does that mean for, you know, those online content providers? Would patriotic content scare away their their users, maybe Mike? I think they would find it very, very difficult. I think they would find it very, very challenging. I think mm. the, the, we've found with the, the social media platforms have been 
and I think this really is the case, have been very, very poor at policing the content and the very, very harmful damage that's been done. We had this conversation, didn't we, not so long ago, and defaming others and bullying others and, and very inappropriate content that it's often found yeah. on these platforms. They, they, they don't really root it out unless it actually becomes big news and, and they, they have no choice. So I think when it comes to patriotic content, I think they would find it very, very difficult. And also, what's the, you know, where are the margins here? What, what do we mean by patriotic content? What do we mean by defamation? Obviously, the, the examples that we talked about with defaming Chinese soldiers in the Korean War, that, that's mm. clearly a, a step far too far. And, and, and that really does require and deserve some sort of action. But, but what, what is, where's that line? So I think it, it really is a murky area. And again, what do we mean by being patriotic and what do we mean by in my area we would use the term cultural appropriation do we sort of represent or do we comment on a, on a different culture and aspects of a different culture inappropriately and it happens a lot mm. and then should it be met with legal action swift some sort of um, aggressive retaliation or, or is it a process of education and just opening up people's minds to how people look at their own culture so i think, certainly think the social media platforms have a lot to answer and have a big big say in this and, and government really need to work very very strongly with them and, yeah. and enforce enforce much much more than they're doing right now yeah, indeed the clarification is always a challenge when a new law is introduced well some people are also questioning whether the new law may lead to nationalism, which is arguably not that desirable at a time when the world is already very divided. So, David, are you concerned about this? Well, yeah, ab absolutely. Uh, nationalism is, is sort of an evil cousin of patriotism, <laughs> I should say. It's a, kind of, it's a kind of a reflexive patriotism that you actually don't need to promote because some people just come, seem to fall into it naturally. Mm. Uh, and also, I would say there's always been such a thing, you know, ultra-nationalism, a sort of blind allegiance, which is outwardly directed toward perceived enemies and so on. But I think the whole nationalistic thing has been exacerbated by social media. Most of the international, the, the ultra-nationalist kind of expressions all over the planet and in many countries in the United States also is now basically a phenomenon of social media. So uh, yeah, obviously social media means that, you know, once a patriotic law is in place, then the ultra-nationalists will take that as their standard and then they will suddenly become like little warriors trying to find violations of the patriotic legislation or actions or whatever they happen to be and to sort of weaponize it instead of just using it as a positive kind of a agenda for creating national spirit and pride in your own country it could be directed in the opposite direction and be kind of very vindictive and, and destructive of the discourse in general so yeah it's a fine line i don't even know how you can draw the line between patriotism and nationalism Indeed. it's it's one of those blurry areas mm -hmm. You know how I see some of these people at Trump rallies, and I'm saying, is this patriotism or is this some kind of cult religion or something? It's like it goes way, way over just merely patriotism. So yeah, it's just a problem that that everyone has to deal with, and uh, that's no reason not to make the law. But you also have to worry about the the extremes on either side need to be checked because both can be destructive, obviously. And an another impact, I, I think um, Ed would. Uh have a better position to solve this problem. The proposed law is expected to be effective in Hong Kong and Macau. And uh, we've seen 
Hong Kong Chief Executive John Lee saying Hong Kong would comply with the patriotic education requirements under the proposed law, but he also noted whether the draft law for it to be applied in Hong Kong would be decided by the National People's Congress uh, Standing Committee following consultations with the Basic Law Committee and the local government, as stipulated in Article 18 of the Basic Law, which is the city's mini-constitution. So what is your interpretation of his remarks? I mean, does it mean applying the patriotic education law in Hong Kong might be in contradiction to the Basic Law? I think that uh, under one country, two systems, I mean, which is the creation of basic law and what, what is, is laid out there is one thing. I think another thing is I think with John Lee as the chief executive, I think that at least people know the direction where he's coming from as the chief executive and that he is clearly on the side of law and order, clearly on the side of keeping in harmony with with, with having one country, two systems, but at the same time, uh, you know, a nod to uh, to mainland and to Beijing with regards to how to enforce these types of things. And so I don't see it any differently from, you know, what, what we have in the United States. We talked about Texas. We have a place called American Samoa, for example, which has, which is a U.S. territory, and they have unique considerations. I mean, ironically, they're a very small part of the United States, but they have the largest by percentages of, of folks that join the United States military. Mm -hmm. And they have a special you know, place in the United States where they can actually pause it. They pause at 5 p.m. every single day and have mandatory prayers. I mean, you don't have to say anything out loud, but there's a unique sense of patriotism, I guess, people joining the United States military from American Samoa. And I think uh, you can draw a parallel with, with Hong Kong being a special administrative region. They're going to be implementing this law, you know, with the patriotism law with regards to education. Best time to get uh, folks educated is when they're young. I mean, it's hard to teach the old dogs new tricks, certainly. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that he's, you know, it's going to be challenging in walking a tightrope with how you can have an argument for greater freedom in Hong Kong and having patriotic education in Hong Kong. But I think that the best way to do it is, is to start, and, and that's what they're attempting to do now. And that's why they've got it open for discussion as to how mm -hmm. this is going to be implemented. In the United States, it's a heck of a lot easier. We have stare decisis. Stare decisis is case law, and they decide on how things are done. In Hong Kong, they have that stare decisis the same as the United States, and they have common law. So that'll start to formulate under uh, the laws, policies, and regulations that are set up by the judiciary and by case law about how this is implemented as far as patriotism is concerned and the patriotic laws, policies, and regulations. Hmm. And another question, probably not so closely related, it's just the, the Hong Kong AR government tried to introduce a patriotic uh, education curriculum in 2012, but it was met with mass protests. Do you expect a similar scenario if the new law is applied in Hong Kong, um, Ed? You know, I mean, considering the historical context, I think it's reasonable to anticipate that there's going to be a similar scenario with regards to the patriotic education as it would be applied to Hong Kong. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think we've moved on. I mean, a lot has happened between 2012 and now. I mean, there is the one country, two systems principle, but I think that they've, you know, what's happened in 2019 and from the appointment of John Lee as the executive officer, I think we've got a different kind of a you know, situation in place. I also think that a lot of people have voted with their feet with regards to Hong Kong. There's been an exodus of uh, and, a, and a brain drain. And I think that, you know, some of the folks that have not necessarily agreed with what was going on, good, bad or indifferent, have left Hong Kong. So I think that's going to 
make this context just a little bit different. But you know, it's it. Hong Kong is a unique, you know, it has a unique historical and cultural context. There's no doubt about that as being a former British colony where there was not freedom of speech there and freedom of expression necessarily under the former administration. But, um, you know, I'm an optimist with regards to how Hong Kong has always remained buoyant, even despite its turmoil over centuries, pretty much. Um, So I, I, you know, I think it'll they'll find a way forward, certainly. Mm, Mike? Yeah, I think it depends how you define patriotism. Obviously, the people of Hong Kong have a very strong sense of local identity, mm. as is the case across China. You know, there's that national identity, but within that, there's that local identity. So if this legislation and whatever ensues and whatever it involves follows a local path, and it's about a celebration and an understanding and respect for your local culture within a national context, I think it will be met much more favorably. And I teach a lot of students from all over China. Obviously, the students from Hong Kong are Chinese, but they're also very, very much Hong Kongese as well as Chinese. I mean, that goes for other parts of China. So I think that's that localization, getting that local context and focus and content, I think will mean it could actually go down quite well. Yeah, and uh, some analysts actually also say it's not just about Hong Kong. It also has some implications for solving the Taiwan problem. Uh, David, you, you stayed in Taipei a few months, right? So yes, right. what's your understanding of this? Or maybe it has nothing to do with this um, Taiwan problem. Well, of course, the implementation of the law is, at this point doesn't have anything to do with Taiwan, of course. It, this, this all depends on what plays out in the coming decades, uh, how, what the status of, of Taiwan is. I think the challenge for Taiwan, I think, the the uh, you know Ed and Mike were mentioning the the strong sense of local culture and local identity mm. in Hong Kong that's still there as uh, is is an issue with with Taiwan but of course much deeper because the distance in time wise the chasm is so large at this point that and and many several generations of people in Taiwan growing up in that environment in that political environment that uh, right now it's just a the notion of a, a patriotic education really would have the only link there is what the Taiwan people and Taiwan thinks of itself in its relationship to Chinese culture per se, because you know there's been a schism that has seriously I think if the, the the Taiwanese identity if there is such a thing has kind of evolved because of, for political reasons. So so the question now is is a deeper question of Taiwan's identification with Chinese culture as a whole. I mean, that's how serious the, the problem is there. So I don't think it's even makes any sense to even think of the ramifications of, of this particular patriotic law mm. proposal, because we just don't know what the future is going to bring. But I assume that when the time comes, you will see something similar to the Hong Kong situation, where you're definitely going to have a local identity, which has to be uh, taken account of in applying in the law. But of course, these laws are not expected to solve these issues uh, just by the implementation of the law. Mm. It's going to take Mm. a long time for the cultures to adapt to it and and frankly, for the laws to also adapt to the changing situation uh, in the region. So yeah, it's a difficult question, but right now it's a little bit too far in the future to make prognostications about it, I think. Right. And uh, to our legal expert here, who's most likely to violate the law once it's in place? Yeah, I mean, that's that's always <laughs> that's always a good question. I mean, you know, I mean, in this world of law and order, it's always tricky to predict who might be the troublemakers once a law is in uh. place. I mean, 
the ones you least expect. But I mean, you know, there's certainly the the law in its majestic, you know, equality forbids the rich as well as the poor to sleep under bridges. I mean, I, I think somebody famous said that. But uh, what certainly would happen is, you know, like I think about what Oscar Wilde said. I mean, I can resist everything except for temptation. So I mean, once once <laughs> law is is put put into place, certainly there are folks that are going to be pushing these things to their limits. I mean, I do believe though, in just going back to the Taiwan question for a moment, mm. I mean, seeing that there is some sort of educational pride put in place, I can't help but think that the you know, Chinese identity through patriotic education, whatever the heck that means, can contribute to a better understanding of historical and cultural ties between mainland and Taiwan. So I think there's a possibility there. I do think that, you know, we've said before, I mean, as soon as there's laws that are put in place, there's a whole group of people who are trying to work around these laws, policies and regulations, and will go out of their way to become lawbreakers in order to to be able to, to take a stance and be martyrs for the cause uh, and, and make things more difficult. So that's, that is kind of what happened in LegCo when there was this run-up uh, in, in 2019 and there was a run-up to the national security law. I think that people got involved in breaking the law in order to make a point to have public discourse uh, that wasn't necessarily positive. So, um, you know, we'll see what happens. Right. Uh, last question. Public opinions are actually being sold on, on the draft law. So what would be your suggestion? Let's start with um, Ed at this time. Well, I think about, you know, what uh, was it George Carlin who said? I mean, why do they call it rush hour when nothing moves? When you call something a patriotic law mm-hmm. uh, or follow patriotic law, I mean, you know, then the question is, you know, what, why would someone want to follow something, you know, that is patriotic? By the way, we do have something called the uh, the Patriot Act in the United States, which came into play after uh, 9-11, which, which talked about a whole bunch of things about who was patriotic and who wasn't. Mm. And you can say, let's take a look at uh, like Edward Snowden. Some people think that person was is a patriot and some people think he's a scoundrel. Um, so it's certainly you know, a, a great opportunity for, I mean, that's the one thing about China, that they allow people like all of us who are on this uh, chat show discuss these and make uh, uh, suggestions to the legislators about how this might be able to work as best as possible. So, I mean, it's one of those things that I think is a great opportunity for China to be able to to allow people to make comment and uh, and pay attention to the draft law. The other thing is, is that I, China has always been good about allowing people to have comment, but then also they've changed laws, policies, and regulations that haven't worked. So, so we'll see what we'll see how this plays out. Certainly, sure. Mike, please. I think I'll pick up on what I said just now. I think this this patriotic law needs to emphasize local culture and a celebration of local culture, lifestyle, and then traditional element that I'm finding younger generations really identify with more and more and value more and more. Now, they do want a slightly more individual identity as well, mm. but they're very much still drawn to this very Chinese sense of belonging and, and respect for, for where they come from nationally as well as locally. So I think if that's played out and promoted carefully, it, it won't seem uh, as it could be as quite threatening and a sort of almost sort of stamping down on this younger generation's rebelliousness. Now, they, they're going to be more rebellious, and we're going to have some examples that, that we've, we've seen, and they need to be dealt with. But I think generally, it surprises me that we, we do have a lot of optimism where younger generations are concerned, particularly in China. So that local patriotism, I think, as well as national. So within the national, the local focus is the way forward. And I think it could be actually quite well received. 
Right. And last but not least, David, please. Yeah, I think that, uh, you know, China is a stage now where they really can be, I think, much more self-exude, more self-confidence about their culture and their governance. If this uh, any patriotic law that's drafted, I think I would like to see emphasize more positive, you know, movements or, or measures you can use to promote awareness of patriotism, awareness of cultural mm-hmm. advantages, and not so much attention on punitive aspects like mm-hmm. saying the wrong thing. I'd like to see the China, you know, exude a little bit more self-confidence and go in that direction rather than worry too much about the little slights, which to other cultures and countries and even to local Chinese can feel petty if you really think that you're uh, an advanced culture that now you, you should feel proud of yourself mm-hmm. as you should should be you've made great progress stress that and not the slights that might occur. That would be my hope. Can't agree more. And with that, we come to the end of our chat. Many thanks to David Moser, Associate Professor of Beijing Capital Normal University, Mike Baston, China Observer and Senior Lecturer at the University of Southampton in Britain, and Edward Lehman, Founder and Managing Director of China-based law firm Lehman Lian Shi for sharing your insights with us. The show is available on all major podcast platforms. If you've got anything to say about the topic or the show, feel free to tell us. Just drop us an email at radio at cgtn.com. I'm Tuyin. Thank you for being with us. We'll have more chat next week. Once upon a time, in a land not so very far away, stories were told of the brave and the bold. The whole court fell silent to hear what the great warrior Mulan might ask for. Of mighty deities and powerful immortals, Immediately, the shimmering skin started to grow before his eyes. Of fated love and love sanctified. In dawn's golden light, New Lang said, Marry me. Of great journeys across fantastical landscapes. So the cat and the mouse climbed on the dog's back, and the dog swam across the broad river. In the company of friends and enemies and unimagined beasts. Good to see you. Of ordinary folk with tantalizing stories to tell. Heroes and heroines all. It's incredible. How did you do that? Tales of sad sacrifice and victories snatched from the jaws of defeat. Stories of the wise, the accomplished and the quick of mind. 5,000 years of amazing Chinese folk tales. You'll find Chinese Folk Tales Season 3 wherever you discover your favorite podcasts.